0: Roll the goofy toothpaste on the cool boys boulevard you croopy young dooseligs sig sheas tarish stock it's the blind boy podcast yurt god bless you all you spring cunts it's uh yeah the weather's improving it's getting a little bit springy isn't it it's getting a small bit springy there's the promise of dew in the air the fucking i don't know that that uh the smell of a leaf that hasn't happened yet. Do you know that one? The buds aren't out yet, but you can just smell, it's a resin. You just know it. There's life. There's the potential of life ready to happen. And I'm looking forward to those bammy evenings. So <clears throat> this podcast is growing internationally at a at a bizarre rate. I've got a following in Buenos Aires, which I never thought I'd have. How are you getting on Buenos Aires? So anyway, because the international following is growing, I'm getting a lot of offers for international podcast dates. So there is going to be a tour of Canada, right? In July, I'm coming to Canada, to Toronto and Vancouver. Um, I announced last week, uh, I announced I'd, after this podcast went out last week. So I got approached by a company that was like blind buy. We notice you have a following in Canada. Will you come and do some podcast gigs for us? So I says, yes, I fucking will. Because I love Toronto with all my heart. I've never been to Vancouver yet. Fuck me, I love Toronto. It's one of my favourite cities in the world. It's like, it looks like New York, but it has the heart and soul of London. It, Which basically means there's no Americans there. Sorry, America. Um, But uh, I do enjoy a bit of Toronto and I'm going to be going there first off the company said to me will you do some live podcasts and I said yes I will but can I bring with me my dear friends Mr Chrome and DJ Willie DJ? the other two lads who are part of the Rubber Bandits and they said yes so in Canada in July there's going to be two Rubber Bandits gigs and two live Blind Boy podcasts the The fucking... I announced them on Thursday. The Rubber Bandits gig in Vancouver is sold out already. In the Rickshaw Theatre on the 4th of July. That's sold out. In Toronto, the Rubber Bandits show on the 6th of July. There's only like 50 tickets left. So, if you want to come to see the Rubber Bandits in the 6th of July in uh, the Opera House in Toronto. Get your tickets now. The live Blind by podcast in Toronto and Vancouver. Right? those dates aren't on sale yet i think they're going on sale on friday the 6th of april i think but the podcast dates are blind by podcast the 3rd of july in the rickshaw of vancouver and the 7th of july in toronto in the opera house um so those are the live podcast dates that aren't on sale yet um one thing I did want to say and I was a little bit concerned and confused right so I've got a load of fucking listeners in Canada who are like Canadian people who don't know fuck all about the rubber bandits they just know this podcast and that Vancouver rubber bandits date is after setting out quickly so just to say to the any canadians I just I hope some like 60 year old Canadian person who listens to this podcast didn't accidentally buy a ticket to a Rubber Bandits gig it's a very different flavour just to the Canadians listening the Rubber Bandits gigs will be a very sweaty loud affair with mostly just a load of fucking Irish people living in Toronto or Vancouver coming to our gig to get uh, to t- probably to get shit-faced and take loads of drugs and have a mad rave and it'll be very loud and sweaty and chaotic. You're more than welcome to come to that, Canadians. You are fucking more than welcome. It's going to be great crack. I think it's, a, it's actually a legal hash company that's bringing us over. I need to check that out but I'm nearly sure. My agent said to me it's like a legal cannabis company that's taking us over. But it's going to be nuts. The rubber bandits gigs are going to be we we haven't... We're kind of on a break from uh, doing live gigs. We haven't done a live rubber bandits gig in, in Ireland for a while. But when I rang up Chrome and Willie and said... Man, we go to Canada. Man, we go to Canada and have a fucking laugh. And hang out and have a bit of crack. Of course they said yes. So... Just a heads up. Um, Canadians absolutely come along to the rubber bandits gig. But know what you're getting. You're getting a very sweaty, loud, drunken affair which will be great crack, but an incredibly different flavour and atmosphere to the live podcast. The live podcast is going to be me with a guest. I don't even fucking know who I'm going to be interviewing. I can't wait to ask ye to suggest some some guests for me in Toronto and Vancouver. Live podcast is going to be a guest. Um, it'll be mostly Canadian people, I'm guessing. Uh, I don't think anyone's going to be shit-faced drunk at the live podcast. I hope not. Um, most likely not... ...so that's the kind of chilled out vibe... ...me in a conversation, live podcast... ...but then... ...the fucking... ...Rubber Bandits gigs are just going to be... ...a very loud, um... ...a collective spiritual vomit... ...from the island of Aaron... and um, ...that will be the crack... ...and I hope it's not too fucking hot... ...I don't know what, like... ...I suppose Canada does get a bit hot... ...doesn't it, in, like... I, I was in I was in New York once with MTV around fucking June or July and it was it was fair hot, you know. We went out to Jersey Shore. Um so I hope Canada's not too hot. We'll deal with it. Fuck it. We'll turn on the air conditioning. It'll be grand. Um I hope I get time to chill out in Toronto. I really do. Um my schedule is gonna be insane. Uh, lots of gigs, lots of travelling, lots of um kind of business obligations while I'm over there. The Royal Ontario Man- Museum in Toronto is the greatest museum I've ever been to in my life. I have a mug from that museum that has, I, I, I believe I was there at, um. there was an exhibition of, of Mayan and Aztec masks and I fucking loved it and I just hope I get a few hours in that museum I, I and the dinosaur bones lads Christ although dinosaurs have been ruined for me recently you know I mean I was first properly confronted with a decent set of dinosaur bones in the, the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto they had a fucking T-Rex and a Velociraptor and I was just marvelling at their majesty you know I had a mad horn for dinosaurs when I was younger like even before Jurassic Park how's that for hipsterism But, like, being beside these T-Rexes and Velociraptors and Brachiosauruses and imagining them as these ferocious lizards. But, unfortunately, in the past ten years, you know, science has learned a lot more about dinosaurs. And most of them, they were most likely feathered and honked instead of roared, you know. And I can't take a Velociraptor seriously if I just imagine them as this annoying, honking, feathered bird that can't fly so hopefully that new scientific revelation won't sully my experience in the Royal Ontario Museum what else do I like to do There's, I, I enjoy Jewish delicatessens and there's a Jewish delicatessen called kaplinski's in Toronto, if I can visit there I will as well, hopefully my schedule won't be fucking mad and I won't be just on the road all the time and of course, fucking hash is legal there as well, and it's a hash company's bringing us there. So I hope I don't like, I don't know, end up in the museum looking at the dinosaurs, putting up a whitener. Imagine the imagining the dinosaurs honking. So th- that's uh, that's something that I'm going to try and not do, as well. Look at that now. Social anxiety creeping in. I'm supposed to be over going over to Toronto to enjoy myself, and I've already. Fantasized into reality the inevitability of me pulling a whiter in front of a lot of dinosaur bones and being asked to leave the country. Fuck that. Um, yeah, but there's going to be a wider world tour in the works. Um, probably some American dates. Most likely, a bit of uh, Australia. I will. I'll be going to Australia when it's our winter and their summer. Um, m- I, that's not confirmed now, but. I'm I'm trying to make I'm trying to work it out I'm trying to make it happen, and then what I can't wait to do is to start doing some live podcasts in the non English speaking countries, because, like in fucking Spain, like you know what I mean, fairly decent listenership, several thousand people listening to this in Spain, and um, there's listeners all over the gaff, and I get I get contact from some of the people listening in these countries, and the vibe that I get is people people who speak english as a a second language and who really really want to speak it well tend to listen to a lot of podcasts they tend to listen to english that's spoken in regional accents or english that's hard to understand as a way to challenge themselves so most of my like brazilian or fucking argentinian or uh italian spanish listeners that's what they're doing it's like they said i i listened to your podcast because i wanted to hear see if i could listen to somebody speaking english in an irish accent and they end up then staying for the content so it's quite a bizarre thing that i never thought would happen so before i move on i'm just gonna really really quickly plug uh irish live podcasts in april I know it's annoying, but I'm under contractual obligation to promote them. So I'm going to do it mad quickly. Okay. Um, this Saturday, Manahan Castle Blaney, sold out. Thank you, Monaghan. Friday, 5th of April, Nase, Moat Theatre. 6th of April, Vicker Street, Dublin. 7th of April, Vicker Street, Dublin. Still a few tickets left for those. Friday, the 12th of April, Whitla Hall, Belfast. Few tickets left there. Twenty seventh of April, Cork in the Opera House. Um, all those gigs are almost sold out, but there's there's tickets left. So thank you very much and God bless. Um, last week what was I fucking doing last week? Last week I was filming in Limerick. I brought over, as you know, I have a, a BBC series, which. Is called Blind by Undestroys, and I th- I think that's a it might be a working title, not sure. But the pilot was called Blind by Undestroys Housing, and for each episode, we're going to take a new theme. So I'm working on that series. I, as you know, I was over in London filming it. So this week, the last bits we needed to film, I said, fuck off, ye come to Limerick, I'm too busy. I'm writing a fucking book, I'm doing this podcast, I'm doing new Bandits tunes at the weekend, I don't want to go to London, ye come to me. So the BBC came over to me, to Limerick, and we did some filming, and we'd great crack, and it's just nice to film in Limerick, and what was sound was the amount of help we got from just local businesses, like, um. I want to give two shout outs because the thing is you, you can't shout out businesses on the BBC because the BBC is one hundred percent paid by British taxpayer money, so they don't do any advertising um also, yes, I got British taxpayer money, brought it to fucking Limerick and got to hire and create a couple of jobs temporary jobs just for a week, but nonetheless created some employment in Ireland with British money, so take that Maggie Thatcher um. Dolan's Warehouse in Limerick were unbelievably sound they gave us the full upstairs to film for an entire day unbelievably helpful so god bless ye and fair play and what else the art college in Limerick LSAD who where I did my fucking my degree and I did my masters Uh, I went to the film and lens based media course there and said to them how are you getting on lads i'm in limerick with a bbc film crew a proper professional film crew would you like to send a couple of students so that they can watch so that happened too a few students came down from the film and lens based media course in lsad and they got to see a proper film set in action with professional equipment and got to observe and watch not free labor lads they got to observe and watch and yeah, I do that because I have I have undying love for the art college in Limerick because I fucking hated school. I really, really didn't like school. I didn't suit so, the academic secondary school education system at all. I was consistently in trouble. The only enjoyment I got out of school was messing and creating trouble. That's what I used to enjoy. I used to enjoy being a smart arse and making people laugh. I did not enjoy academic work. It didn't click with me. I didn't like this business of just learning things for the sake of it. I cannot do maths at all. I can barely count my fingers. I literally can't do maths. So I ended up ended up doing foundation for the fucking Leaving Cert, which means you effectively fail your Leaving Cert then. But when I went to Limerick School of Art and Design when I was about 18... Um, It was the first time ever that teachers, I suppose, had told me I was good at something. And it was the first time that I felt worthy. It felt like I had something proper to offer. Because I'd spent the whole time in secondary school being called a a bousy. And being told I was useless. So when I got to art college, I'd be there painting and drawing. And all of a sudden, like the teacher who I'm scared of because secondary school had taught me to be afraid of teachers all of a sudden the the lecturers are going wow you're brilliant well done and that alone that alone at a young age was fucking huge for at that moment I was like all right okay I can be a professional artist you know I can take and I'm not painting and drawing now but it doesn't matter what I'm doing with music or with the podcast or writing books that's all art that's all it all comes from a a kind of a stem of creativity and the art college was very important for me in developing those skills so I did like to knock on their door and try and be sound to them and say do you want to give me a couple of students and they can see what's happening for experience so um. This week's podcast is going to be about, it's going to be musical, it's going to be a music, some some a, a roasting hot take um, and a bit of musical history and reflection. Now I know last week I touched upon, I briefly covered Enya, but looking back that wasn't really a hot take, that was me making the case for why Enya deserves more critical acclaim and I got a lot of positive responses to that, people agreed with me and then we had an interview with uh, Michelle Darmody and Ellie Kizyumbe about Direct Provision got a great response to that too Um, it's great just to be able to put stories like that out there and get people listening and talking and thinking about Direct Provision so this week yeah Musical Hot Take and it is about it's my own something I've been been baiting around in my head for a while something I've been kind of fixating on it's it's my own kind of theory on the origins of of uh, the sound of the band Nirvana, right? Uh, in spe- specifically Kurt Cobain's voice and Kurt Cobain's tone, and where that kind of comes from. Now I have a I have an utterly fucking bizarre hot take around it. Now when I say hot take, what 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 I mean is. Because don't take my fucking podcast literally. There's a lot of people taking my podcast literally. I'm not an expert on anything. Okay, so if I'm talking about history, if I'm talking about music, it's mostly um, fairly informed opinion, you know? Sometimes I get things wrong. Sometimes I have a few details that are off. But my main motivation with this podcast, even when I'm talking about history, are you know stuff that's happened my motivation essentially is entertainment i want to completely and utterly entertain you i want to give the most entertaining version of events rather than the one that's uh i i I won't say historically inaccurate because i i never knowingly talk out of my hole i won't knowingly lie to you if i don't know a piece of information i'll let you know that i don't know about it but at the same time, I'm liable to make the odd mistake. Because I'm not a fucking expert. I'm not an expert in anything. So, be careful around that. Because I get people talking shit about me online. I got people saying... Uh, talking about how, how I might be inaccurate in my history. Or things like that. So don't go around saying that I'm, I'm an authority. I'm not. I'm someone who's talking into a sock in their bedroom. Who's somewhat informed. But... ...ultimately what I'm trying to do is provide... Uh, ...entertainment... ...and something that's interesting... ...and nice to listen to... ...and a bit of crack... ...and... Uh, ...so yeah... ...don't want to get on to exactly what the hot take is yet... ...but... ...obviously I love... ...I love Nirvana... ...I fucking adore Nirvana... ...they're... ...how could you not... ...they're the last great... ...huge superstar band... ...you know... ...in that tradition... ...of massive... ...bands... It kind of stops at Nirvana. You can make a case for Radiohead, but really Nirvana are the last in that line of Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Prince, you know, this huge behemoth acts that transcend time and will forever exist. I I don't think, I just don't hear Radiohead, uh, I love Radiohead, but I don't hear them getting the Generation Z and young millennials, you don't really hear them listening to that much fucking Radiohead, but Nirvana has survived. Kurt Cobain is a legend. Nirvana's music is listened to. The music is classic. It's going nowhere. It's amazing. And ultimately, with Nirvana, I think what separates like Nirvana came out of the Seattle grunge scene in the early late '80s, and what kind of Grunge, grunge is like okay. You're talking Seattle and the state of Washington. That's up in the, the top left of America, but it comes from, we'll say the heaviness of eighties metal, right? So the heaviness and aggressiveness of metal, but without the technical prowess of metal. So eighties metal, uh, trash. We'll say Megadeth, Metallica. Very, very heavy, loud music with uh, massive amounts of distortion, but also quite technical, like Van Halen, virtuoso musicians. Grunge kind of took that heaviness and that loudness, but then mixed it with the, the DIY sensibility of punk. Punk music isn't about technical prowess. Punk music is about simplicity and the idea that anyone can pick up a guitar and start a band. So the two of them kind of mixed together in the most simpi- pl- simplistic way is, is a very simple definition of what grunge music was. And Nirvana came out of the grunge scene. There were many, many bands in Seattle who were making grunge music. Um, The closest to Nirvana's sound would be the Melvins. You know, you go and listen to a couple of Melvins albums and it sounds like Nirvana. But, you know, out of all these grunge bands, who else did you have? Fucking Addison Chains. Well, they were kind of big. No, fuck it, let's go with the big ones uh, Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Addison Chains, um, Mud Honey, uh, The Melvins, as I mentioned. All these bands, and they were class. ...but they haven't really survived in the way that Nirvana has. You're gonna get the odd few people listening to Pearl Jam... ...but in terms of legacy... ...I mean, 1990 was... ...29 fucking years ago. So nearly 30 years ago. Am I, am I wrong with that? I can't do maths, lads. How long ago was 1990? Is it Was it 20 years? oh man I'm shit at maths let's just say 1990 was 20 years ago no it's 30 years 29, 29 years ago right so grunge was like 30 years ago we'll say um Nirvana really are the only ones that have survived properly okay you're still gonna get a few heads into Alice in Chains and, and Pearl Jam but Nirvana have survived the reason is is what separated Nirvana from all of the other grunge acts is that yes Nirvana were heavy as fuck and hard as fuck, right? But ultimately Nirvana the music is a postmodern ironic throwback to 60s pop music. If you got Beatles songs and kind of put really heavy loud guitars over them, you'd you'd be in the territory of Nirvana. Kurt Cobain liked um, 1960s bubblegum pop, right? And this comes through in the melodies that are in Nirvana's music. So, you know, Pearl Jam is really dark. The, the, the Melvins were dark as fuck, uh, really loud and heavy, but not a lot of melody going on. Nirvana, ultimately, they're very, very catchy songs. Like, there's a thing in songwriting called the old grey whistle test okay. now not the TV show called the old grey whistle test the TV show was named after this phenomenon whereby in the early 20th century in New York there was a place called Tin Pan Alley and in Tin Pan Alley around I thing called the Brill Building I believe loads of songwriters used to have pianos and they would write songs mainly for the sheet music industry, not even records yet writing catchy songs for people to buy as sheet music and go home and play at home or sing in a pub so it was called Tin Pan Alley because you had all these songwriters on pianos playing at the same time in the same area so this cacophony of different p- pan- pianos sounded like people banging pots and pans so in Tin Pan Alley when they were trying to write songs and they needed to figure out what was going to be a hit okay, what they would do is a thing called the Old Grey Whistle Test. So, the songwriter would write a song on piano, with piano and their voice, they'd really, really quickly cut, cut it to vinyl, right? Really quickly, just one press copy to vinyl. And then what would happen in the evening, when they all went home, cleaning ladies would come in, and they referred to these cleaning ladies as the Old Greys, okay? So, the lads would have the song that they'd written that day on the vinyl, leave it on the player, on loop all night and if they came in the next day and the old greys the women were whistling the song that they had left on repeat it meant it had passed the old grey whistle test and that song was going to be a hit Nirvana's music passes the old grey whistle test it's still to this day that is a you know if for me I always knew if we were recording a music video And obviously when you're recording a music video, you have to play the song over and over on set. If the extras in the video very quickly start whistling the melody of the song for the video, you know you've got a hit in your hands. When we were recording Horse Outside, within 20 minutes, every single person who was an extra in that video couldn't stop whistling and singing the tune. So I I then thinking all great whistle test in my head was going, fuck it, that song's gonna do all right. So Nirvana passes all great whistle test not a bother. You hear a Nirvana song, it's stuck in your head all day. No matter how heavy it is, no matter how hard it is, Kurt Cobain had the melodic sensibilities of sixties pop. He has publicly said that, you know, he was a huge fan of the Beatles when he was a kid. But the the kind of the holy trinity of sixties guitar pop for me, okay, would be the Beatles, the Kinks. And the Beach Boys, okay. I think the biggest influence on Nirvana is without question the Beach Boys. It's fucking uncanny. I'll show you quickly, like, cause I, when I say that to people, when I say it to people, Nirvana are just a really heavy Beach Boys, people go, "Shut up, you're talking out of your hole." And maybe I am talking out of my hole, but I'm gonna play you a quick example now. We'll say of a Nirvana song. And then I'll follow it up with a, a little Beach Boys song, just a, a clip. Now my hot take isn't Nirvana were influenced by the Beach Boys. It's it's one aspect of the hot take. I'm sure I'm sure there's someone else out there saying that Nirvana and the Beach Boys were similar. Um my hot take is way worse than that. I'm gonna get to it in a while. But here is a snippet of a Nirvana song called About a Girl. About a girl about that would have been written 89 1990, 90, right? So now I'm gonna play ye 1965, The Beach Boys, and listen to the similarities between the two tracks so you don't think I'm mad. This song is called Girl Don't Tell Me. I met you last summer when I came up to stay with my So, that's the beach boys, girl don't tell me And, you know, you'd want to be deaf to not see that there's massive similarities between those two songs That fucking beach, 65, that's nearly 30 years ago, you know Or sorry, 60 years ago So, and the Nirvana song was written 30 years after that so those are two songs that are 30 years apart yet they sound quite similar because Kirk Cobain he got his singing style from the Beach Boys and what makes the Beach Boys kind of stand out and when, we, when we think of the Beach Boys when I say to people the Beach Boys pe- people who aren't we'll say huge music fans the Beach Boys have um, an image of, of kind of being novelty and fun and you you will hear serious music heads, people who really care about music, will give the Beach Boys the respect they deserve. But the average person who's not crazy about music wouldn't put the Beach Boys on a Beatles level, we'll say. But they absolutely fucking are. Like, like first off, Brian Wilson is as important a producer as Phil Spector. The Beach Boys album, Pet Sounds, is one of the most important albums of the 20th century and what it did for production. But what makes the Beach Boys unique is that you had fucking Brian Wilson and the other fella, Mike Love, with these incredibly sweet, melodic falsettos. But then you also had Dennis Wilson, the drummer, and Carl Wilson, who had... Dennis and Carl had shit voices, okay? By the standards of 1960s music and what was considered normal and what was considered a good voice, Carl Wilson and Dennis Wilson both had awful husky voices that were in a low kind of range. And what you hear with that song there, Girl Don't Tell Me, and what separates it from the rest of the Beach Boys' work, the lead singer doesn't have a strong voice that can go um, the melodies aren't reaching high instead what they do is they reach low so wh- where if Brian Wilson was singing that song those melodies would be falsetto and they'd reach high and they'd be catchy but because it was either Dennis or Carl with their shit voices singing that song when the melody was supposed to go high where they were singing they dragged it down and what you end up is, that right there, I, I speak a lot about, um, you know, music is an ongoing conversation, okay, it's an ongoing conversation whereby you can trace the DNA of music and songs, and what I like to obsess over is to trace DNA of songs and go, I like this song, where did it come from, and where did the song that it came from come from, but every so often, you have your little genetic mutations, and the u- genetic mutations are happy accidents that change the genetic code as such. They change the, it's like, you know, a traditional musical conversation is two songs having a conversation with each other over time. And then just this lunatic lunatic comes in and spits in someone's face, and that stops the conversation. And then a new one has to start about why someone had their face spat into. Do you know what I mean? That might be a very extreme example. But that there is, is a, a genetic mutation in music. Either Carl or Dennis Wilson with their terrible voices in that song in 1965. And I'm guessing, like, they're all a family, you see, you know. And their dad used to manage them. Their dad was a prick. Their dad beat the fuck out of Brian Wilson and made him deaf in one ear. Brian Wilson had terrible mental health problems. But because they're a family, they were quite democratic with the songs and the music. So they used to kind of cringe when Carl Wilson or Dennis Wilson was singing because they had shit voices. So that song there is an album track. Do you know? I don't even think... I don't think it ranked much as a single. But it's a genetic mutation in that right there is the... That's the DNA of Nirvana. That That is the start of the Nirvana conversation in that song. Because in... Uh, Kurt Cobain's track about a girl and all of Nirvana's repertoire Kurt Cobain doesn't have a particularly good voice either to be honest now good isn't the right word Kurt Cobain doesn't have a traditionally strong singer's voice he has a mid-range uh, husky voice you know he smoked a lot of fags he was a heroin addict his throat wasn't great so it was a gravelly husky voice Whereby, if Kirk Cobain was given the choice of, you know, singing a high melody like Paul McCartney could do or John Lennon could do, he wouldn't go for the high melody. He'd drag the melody down. And if he had to go high, he might scream instead. Such was the weakness of his voice. Carl and Dennis Wilson had the same thing. So, back to the Beach Boys song. What you get with that Beach Boys song now, listening to it, since grunge has happened, it has that. Nirvana's music, like I said, was, it was a postmodern response to 60s bubblegum pop. So if you listen to early Beatles music, like I Want to Hold Your Hand, the really catchy, shiny um, Beatlemania, before 1965 Beatles music, it's very upbeat, it's very catchy, and you can't get it out of your head. It's, it operates on a nursery rhyme level. Then, of course, after 65, they start getting a bit dark. Um, same with The Kinks. Kinks before 65, really catchy. Um, Not a lot of staying on major cards to keep it really nursery rhyme type of catchy, you know. Also, what you get is sincerity. Um, Early Beach Boys stuff, early Beatles stuff, it's sincere. When they're singing about I want to hold your hand, they mean I want to hold your fucking hand. Sincerity is a modernist principle. The postmodern response to sincerity is irony and humor and angst. That's what you get with Nirvana. Nirvana is not sincere. You know, here we are now, entertain us. But sang like someone who's does not want to be entertained. Someone who's tired. That's irony. If the Beatles were singing it, they'd be quite happily saying, entertain us quite happily. Um. Also regarding the, the Beach Boys song. The reason I believe it to be a, a, an accidental genetic mutation is because... They weren't thinking about irony in 1965. Irony was not present in popular music in 1965. It was sincerity. And I know this with that song because there's an instrument in there called a glockenspiel. A glockenspiel is like a tinkly sound. It sounds a bit like a triangle. But it's on what's known as an arpeggio, which is a a repeating loop. I know from listening to that that they were echoing back to... A Buddy Holly song called "Every Day," which is a really simple, sincere bubblegum pop song. I know by the production that's what they were echoing. They were trying to continue that conversation, but then Carl or Dennis walks into the room with their terrible voices and ends up ironically, accidentally, ironically subverting the sincerity of what Brian Wilson's intention would have be when he when he wrote the song. That's that fucking Beach Boys song. It starts to feel a bit depressing but not bad depressing good depressing angst there's angst and pain when either dennis or carl drag those notes down you hear pain in their voice you don't hear enthusiasm you hear an ironic angst and that's what nirvana nirvana's music is to kind of lay foundation to that argument just look at nirvana's music videos from the early 90s look at a video like in bloom In the video for In Bloom, it's a deliberate parody of The Beatles' first appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show in, like, 1963. Uh, The Ed Sullivan Show would have been, like, the late, late show in America. It was, if an act was to break America, they went on The Ed Sullivan Show and they performed and that was it. They became massive. The Rolling Stones were on it as well. So when The Beatles first went on The Ed Sullivan Show, they could barely perform because all the girls in the audience were screaming and roaring. And I think they did, I Want to Hold Your Hand. So in Nirvana's video for In Bloom which is 1991 they do it in black and white they dress up looking like the Beatles or Buddy Holly but they play this crazy fucking heavy depressing song where instead of the melodies going up the melodies of the vocal goes down So right there you can tell that that's an early 90s postmodern ironic remix of and and using things like nostalgia as well cuz the Beatles would have been ...and the Beach Boys would have been what Kurt Cobain... ...and the rest of Nirvana were listening to when they were kids... ...Nirvana is an ironic response to 60s pop... ...but the roots of it I think is... ...the vocals of Carl and Dennis Wilson... ...and I think it's a strong enough case... ...you can't deny that... ...you can't listen to those two songs beside each other... ...and tell me... ...holy fuck... ...that Nirvana track sounds a lot like that Beach Boys track... I've I've played that Beach Boys track for people for the laugh and said to them, did you hear this Nirvana song? And a few people take a few seconds to go that's not Nirvana, do you know what I mean? It's the same thing, it's a depressed vocal that goes down when it should go up and what this does is it creates a feeling of angst and coolness and irony which didn't really belong in 60s music it's a late postmodern thing that belonged in 80s and 90s the pixies kind of introduced it as well so that's not even my hot take that's not even my hot take that's the foundations for the hot take to give me a sense of authority and um, ju- just to expand a little bit as well on to try and make the concept of irony in music simple because I'm just reminding myself, I'm, I'm someone who, like, makes fucking art for a living, and the concept to me might be easy, because it's the world I live in, but if you're, if you're an accountant, we'll say, you'd be like, what the fuck is he on about, what's irony? A simple example of irony would be, it, it's when you have two opposing things, right? Two things that oppose, that have two separate meanings, and when when you mix them together in just the right way, it creates this new meaning. That new meaning is irony. Classic example of, we'll say, early 90s angsty irony that Nirvana would have been operating in. The film Reservoir Dogs. The most famous scene in Reservoir Dogs is where your man is in a warehouse, the policeman is in a warehouse tied up in a chair and the gangster cuts his ear off alright, we all know that from Reservoir Dogs okay what made that particular scene so groundbreaking in 1991 which is the same year that Nirvana are doing their shit because this is real fucking Generation X irony carry on so irony assumes that and postmodernism assumes that the audience who is watching who is consuming the thing that they're watching is literate in media that they've grown up around television they've grown up around films so tarantino knows when he has the reservoir dog scene cutting off your man's ear he knows that his audience have seen violent films before that they've grown up with them so when the razor blade comes out and you know some violence is going to happen the tarantino knows that the audience expect scary music classic example um 1960s, the film psycho, right? The film psycho, your one is in the shower, and your man comes in with the knife, and you have that really striking scary violin music that we all know. The scary music in psycho. That set a precedent. That's like that's sincere. That's a sincerity. Woman is being killed in the shower, the music is scary. It all matches up, it makes sense. That's sincerity. Now we've got 1991 Reservoir Dogs. There's a man tied up in a a chair. He has petrol thrown on him and he's going to get his ear cut off. What does Tarantino do? He plays 70s bubblegum pop. He plays a piece of music which is happy and upbeat and this, this piece of information, this happy and upbeat music juxtaposed with a person getting their ear cut off. The mixture of those two opposing meanings Blended perfectly together creates this new emotion called irony. That's what irony is. And that's what Nirvana's music is. Sincere, early 60s bubblegum pop. But done with very, very heavy guitars. And instead of going for the upbeat melody. You go down on the melody. And you have now this irony. So Nirvana's music really is. It's the ear getting cut off scene in Reservoir Dogs. And, you know, why do we have irony in the early 60s and why do we not have irony in, you know, why do, we, why do we have sincerity in the early 60s and then irony in the early 90s? My personal opinion, I think, you look at what's happening from 1960 to 1965, you've got the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. The world truly, genuinely believed that it was going to end in nuclear war. In 1963, people thought the world was going to end. Okay, the Cuban Missile Crisis was no fucking joke. Russia and America came very close to destroying the entire world with nuclear missiles. That's a reality. So therefore, culture must reflect that terror and fear by feeding people good news. The early music of the Beatles and the early music of the Beach Boys pre-65 is a load of good news. Then, mid-60s onwards, shit changes a bit... Irony starts to get introduced when the Beatles start doing acid with Sgt. Pepper and the ultimate act of irony in pop music in the 60s, the final defining ironic act, 1969, Woodstock Festival. This is 69, you've got the Vietnam War going on, but the Vietnam War is dragging its heels. As well, what makes the Vietnam War so special compared to World War II, it's the first war that people are seeing on television and are actually being confronted with the meaninglessness, the angst and the hopelessness of, what, hopelessness of what war really is. With World War II, you can control it with propaganda. You can say it to people, our tr- troops are fighting the good fight and they're all coming home and they died on the battlefield in, in a noble way. By the time Vietnam comes by 69, people are seeing on the news about things like the My Lai Massacre. They're seeing US soldiers committing war crimes. They're seeing villages on fire. They're seeing children with their backs on fire. So this now, you can no longer believe in the sincerity of good war. So by 1969, this is reflected in art perfectly, ironically. Jimi Hendrix at the Woodstock Festival does a guitar solo. He does the Star Spangled Banner, which is the American national anthem. He plays it on an electric guitar and distorts and fucks up the notes to make this proud song of a nation sound very fucked up and painful and right that's the that for me is the touchstone of the introduction of irony to pop music that jimi hendrix moment 1969 i've digressed i fucking digressed lads. All right very very quick um ocarina pause or no banjo pause before i move on to the final hot take the, the banjo's on the other side of the room, and I'm not going to go over to get it. I've got this really big, giant, depressing ocarina, so we'll have a, a we'll have an awful ocarina pause. Fuck that. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. can't even get a couple of notes out of it like enough of that so that was the shit ocarina pause you might have heard an advert for some bullshit Um, this podcast is sponsored by you the listener via the Patreon page patreon.com forward slash the Podcast. do you like the podcast? do you find it enjoyable? well you can become a patron by giving me the price of a cup of coffee or the price of a pint once a month via the patreon patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast please do please please do if you can afford it it is makes a huge difference to my life if you can't afford it that's grand Yort. okay i launched into a do you know what that was a necessary explanation of irony and how it relates to culture and it, it kind of tied in with the theme because it stuck it with uh with 60s music so my warm take is that Nirvana and Kurt Cobain's voice in particular can trace their origins to the Beach Boys in particular the song Girl Don't Tell Me 1965 that is my belief where does it get hotter well this is this is uh, this is the moment where like let's just say you and me are in a pub and we've just sat down we've had a pint you know, and I've I've spoken all about yeah, making my case for the beach boys in Nirvana. And you're listening to me and you're going, fuck it, blind boy. Yeah, do you know what? I'm on board. I like it. Now I'm going to start going somewhere where you're going to slowly just back away. You're just going to get your point and you're going to leave. All right? Which is, that's where I want to be with a good a good hot take. That's really where I want to be. I want people to be just going, fuck off. Okay? So, Dennis Wilson, okay? So, that song that I played, G, Dennis and Carl Wilson with their terrible, terrible voices, which I believe inspired Kirk Cobain. Specifically, I think the biggest inspiration on Kirk Cobain's voice was Dennis Wilson, okay? This is where it starts getting mad. Dennis Wilson, he. He was a bit of a... I don't want to say... Waster isn't fair because he had his issues, right? He had his issues. He had uh, mental health issues. He had issues with addiction. All of this. He... He was just the drummer in the band. He was Brian Wilson's brother, you know? They're not going to kick their brother out of the band. He was the drummer in the band. He didn't even drum that much on the albums. They were bringing a better drummer to do it. But Dennis was still, like, earning a fair amount of cash. So... And he liked to spend his cash... And he appears to be like a very sensitive person, a very kind of a kind person, but as well, also, you know, someone who's very easily hurt and lashes out. A person with problems. Dennis Wilson in 1968 was driving around. He had a big fucking mansion up in Malibu, I believe. And he was driving around and he met a hitchhiker, okay? And the hitchhiker had three or four girls with him. So Dennis stops anyway in his kind of his innocence and good nature and gets chatting with the hitchhiker. He likes the vibe of the hitchhiker. He seems like a like a cool dude. The girls seem class. So Dennis says to the hitchhiker, get into my car there. So and we'll head back to my fucking mansion and I will look after you. So he does. So the man and five women, I believe, head back to Dennis Wilson's gaff and end up staying with him for about six months. And, like, they end up, like, having, like, mad sex orgies and doing acid. Um, I think they all caught gonorrhea. Dennis was just, like, looking after him. The Beach Boys didn't give that much of a didn't give that much of a fuck, really, because Dennis wasn't needed in studio. So the main hitchhiker, the man, starts, like, showing Dennis Wilson his songs and telling dennis wilson all about you know his plan this hitchhiker's name was charles manson charles the lunatic mass murdering psychopath serial killer manson dennis wilson became friends with charles fucking manson and wrote songs with him right now charles manson like you know charles manson he he died uh, last year i believe but he is, you know, like the archetype for crazy serial killer. He the Nazi tattoo. He's a swastika in the middle of his fucking forehead. You know, we've all grown up seeing Charles Manson. He's uh, become a media spectacle, quite unhealthily. One of these serial killers that was um, given superstar status. But before Charles Manson... And what Charles Manson did is he managed... He used his influence to form a small cult of about eight people, mostly women. And they lured people to a gaff and murdered them. They murdered several people. Very evil, fucked up shit. And what's important to remember is that before Manson did this, and this harks back to what I said a couple of podcasts ago about why it's important not to dehumanise psychopaths and paedophiles and abusers, Manson obviously would have had a huge degree of superficial charm and it was this charm and magnetism and charisma that got him close to someone like Dennis Wilson. And it was this charisma that allowed him to have a cult. Do you know? A cult sounds like fucking hard work, lads. If you're going to have a cult, a bunch of cons who follow, or follow you around and do what you tell them, you better be charismatic and convincing. And Charles Manson was this before the murders he was also an an aspiring singer-songwriter he was obsessed with the interpreting the music the lyrics of the Beatles um, in particular and this is what I find quite interesting too the song, the Beatles song Helter Skelter which is a Paul McCartney song which is some people will cite it as the first ever heavy metal song some people there's lots of candidates for what's the first heavy metal song but the bog standard, we'll say, Rolling Stone article um, reading is that Helter Skelter is the first ever metal song. But Manson believed that Helter Skelter referred to a world event whereby America would have a race war, and Manson committed a series of murders in order to trigger this race war that would, like, bring an apocalypse or something. I don't know. Mad bullshit so Dennis Wilson big fucking idiot becomes best pals with Charles Manson starts writing songs with him starts bringing these songs to the beach boys right but then what happens because Charles Manson's a fucking lunatic so himself and Charles start writing songs and then I think they went to a studio one day and Dennis Wilson's like management were there or something anyway and there was a disagreement and because Charles Manson's a psychopath, he pulled a knife. He pulled a knife on bodyguards or security or something. Anyway, himself and Dennis Wilson ended up in a scuffle in a bit of a fight. Okay? Now this is where it's this is where it's hazy. This is the bit where I don't have full historical accuracy on this bit. What we do know is that Dennis Wilson got into a scrap with Charles Manson, right? We do know this what we also know Dennis Wilson got punched into the throat at some point after 1968 and this crushed his larynx I believe and permanently changed his voice now I think Charles Manson Charles Manson boxed Dennis Wilson into the throat and fucked his voice up okay that's what I think I don't have the evidence for that, I know there was a scrap and I know that Dennis Wilson ended up with a boxed larynx, what I can't prove is that Charles Manson did it, but my hot take brain wants to say Charles Manson boxed Dennis Wilson into the throat and permanently changed his voice. The greatest influence on Kurt Cobain's vocal vocal style was the solo work that Dennis Wilson did after getting a box into the throat that's when dennis's voice went really low and really husky and you start to hear the origins of that grungy sound the origins of a person who has a raspy damaged voice singing over melodic voices and keeping all the notes low so my heart take ladies and gentlemen is that Kirk Cobain sounds the way he does because Charles Manson boxed Dennis Wilson into the throat. Okay. Can't prove it. It's just, that's my theory. That's my theory and that's what I take to bed at night and hold dearly as a little fun nugget that I keep to myself. You can call me a fool if you want. That's grand. Um, what are we up to here? What time are we? We're at the hour hour mark. So Dennis Dennis Wilson died. He died at about 1983. Um, didn't have a very happy life at all. Ended up like marrying a fucking 19 year old or something stupid like that. Uh, severe cocaine problems, problems with alcohol, uh, other addiction issues. Not a very happy person. Um you know obviously he got the fuck away from Charles Manson the guilt of it stuck with him, it kind of traumatised him a bit, it's like I had this man living in my house for like two months, three months he was friends of mine and then he went and became the most famous and notorious serial killer in America and Manson's legacy you know Marilyn Manson is named after him do you know Manson has a, a, a strange musical rock star legacy the one that I think is that he boxed Dennis Wilson into the throat and that Dennis Wilson voice after 1968 influenced Kurt Cobain so what I'll what I'll leave you with before I head away I'll play uh, like Dennis Wilson did, did not have a successful solo career he made one album called Pacific Ocean Blue it's only now in the past 10 years being looked at as a kind of an important album as something that was a precursor to like when it came out it's like Dennis you can't you, your fucking throat is boxed off you couldn't sing for the first time round and now you're after getting a box into the throat and you definitely can't sing now so it really wouldn't have sold anything it would have been ripped to shreds he would have been seen as a god help us but he Dennis Wilson was a genetic accident that laid the foundations for angsty 90s grunge and alternative rock you know not just grunge like bands like Pavement and stuff like that you can hear that in Dennis Wilson's voice now obviously Neil Young that's a whole other conversation that's a different conversation about his contribution to grunge but Dennis Wilson is part of the conversation without a doubt so I'll play you a song now there's about 3 or 4 versions of it it's either sometimes called Lady it's sometimes called Fallen in Love it's one of my favourite tunes I heard this about 10 years ago no longer I heard this I heard this longer ago Um, it's from 1970 I believe and it's a very very upset sad Dennis Wilson whose voice is fucked just trying his best Trying his best, and what what it reminds me of a lot of as well is it's there's a Nirvana song called Something in the Way, and if you know Something in the Way, it's it's on. Never mind. What makes Something in the Way so special is that Kurt Cobain's voice really sounds like shit in that song, but the shitness of it is pure beauty, because Kurt Cobain was lying on his, lying on his back. And as he was lying on his back, like, his his neck was kind of pushing down, pushing towards. Like, try singing uh, lying on your back. It's not very easy. So he was lying on his back with the guitar, and he recorded something in the way. And the producer, I'm going to say it was Butch Vig. The producer heard Kurt Cobain lying down on the couch, singing something in the way, and said, don't fucking move. I'm putting a mic beside you. The way you are singing on your back like that, that's perfect. So they recorded it. And it was out of tune. And they tuned down the violins and everything. To fit Kurt's shit voice. But. I hear Dennis Wilson. 1970. Falling in love. In that Kurt Cobain take. And. That's what I'm going to play for you now. Uh, I'll play 30-40 seconds. I'd love to play the whole fucking thing. I can't. Because of the nature of the podcast. And shit getting taken down. So this is foreign in Love by Dennis Wilson. It's utterly beautiful um, it's unintentionally sad and angsty because of poor old Dennis and his broken throat and what makes it even a little bit more sad for me too is that he's a drummer and there's not even drums on it we've spoken about drum machines before there's a drum machine on this song using a drum machine in 1970 was not being cool, It's it was a really shit novelty thing to do and it was someone who couldn't afford a drummer Or couldn't afford to record drums, this would have been viewed on as it would have been seen as a pile of shit when it came out. Flowers come in the spring, all the love I can bring, bring it for my lady. All I can do. You know, you know it's for me, I love a soul, I love to grow. So there you go, Dennis Wilson, early 70s, lady slash fallen in love. That is not a pile of shit. That's a fucking beautiful, gorgeous, bloody song. It's years and years and years ahead of its time. Unintentionally, most likely, but I fucking love it. I fucking love it. And I'd say Kurt Cobain loved it as well. And I can hear Nirvana's sound in that song and in the earlier Dennis Wilson shit with the Beach Boys. That's my hot take think charlie manson was responsible there you go okay i'm gonna fuck off now um thank you so much for listening i i really enjoyed this i loved i love any fucking any podcast where i get to speak with passion about music and about things that i obsess about and think about a lot i love doing um and i really really enjoyed that and i hope you enjoyed it too and that my passion was infectious um, not sure what I'm going to talk about next week. Should we figure something out? In the meantime, um, enjoy the stretch in the evening. Be compassionate towards yourself. Be compassionate towards your neighbour. Have a lovely time. Listen to some Nirvana. If you know, if you're the type of person who's ha, has never really considered the music of the Beach Boys, give it a crack. In particular, the stereo version of Pet Sounds. Fuck me, you can't go wrong with that, you know. All right, God bless your.